Christ provided us with a bridge to overcome the gap between us and God. Much to our surprise, He built a bridge to them as well. Today's story takes place in two locations primarily. They sail, that is Paul and Barnabas, are going to sail to this, uh, this island over here named Cyprus. And then they're going to go north and a little bit west up into Antioch. Now there's two places called Antioch. Actually, one scholar told me there was, or I read, excuse me, that there was several places named Antioch throughout the Roman Empire, okay? But two of them were in this region. One of them, the Antioch that's already been focused on in Scripture earlier in Acts, where the head of the church was now, or, or I should say sort of the, the home base of the church. Things were very disruptive in Jerusalem, and this was much safer there. And so they that sort of became the home base of the church there in, in the Antioch, you see way to the right. But then this other Antioch in a region called Pisidia was the Antioch that this story is going to take place in today, uh, the, the, the bulk of this chapter. <clears throat> and what we're going to see today is that we're asking this question, what in the world is God doing? Imagine for a moment a, a businessman, very successful, and yet, as with anyone in charge of others and in charge of, with, with a lot of responsibility, the stress levels can, can rise and, and, and be overwhelmed, and he knew that he needed to take a break, and he put it off for a long time, and his wife was rightly... Um, you know, encouraging him, urging him, honey, we need to get away. You need to get away. Let's do it. So finally, they scheduled a cruise. They always wanted to go on a cruise, so they went on one. Well, now, the, his, his stress levels, and I think this is true with a lot of us and whatever stressors might be in our lives, sometimes the stress can be sort of reduced down to one person. Like, there's other things going on, but if that one person and what what they're doing or not doing or who they are. And in this case, it was someone else at his job who was always at odds with him and, and making decisions and, and just, he just couldn't seem to get on the same page together. And, and so when he thought of stress, that face came up. So finally, the day comes for the cruise. They go to the port. They're getting on the boat. And he's dragging his luggage and he bumps into someone. It's that guy! He's going on the cruise too. The one, the man that, that brings him all the stress that he's trying to escape is going on the same cruise as he is. What's he going to do? I mean, it's a big boat. There's thousands of people, but he's bound to bump into him at one of the buffets or the pool or one of the activities they do. Uh, I've never been on the cruise myself. I just, people tell me there's lots to do. And, but now... Everywhere he goes, he's going to be looking for that face. And, and, and rather than being away from that face, he's going to wonder if he's nearby. And, and, and this, this hope of getting rid of the stress is now going to be greatly hindered and perhaps even impossible because there's the face of the stress right with him all the time. Can't believe that happened. This story today... And which is why I chose this picture of a, of a three-part bridge. 
is in, in some ways like what's going on in the early church. The first Christians were, of course, Jews. Jesus himself, of course, being a Jew. But the, the challenge for them, and it was a great challenge, including the apostles, including Peter, the challenge was to accept that God was ready to accept everyone, including all of them on the outside. Them, outside of the law, outside of the covenant, as far as they were concerned, outside of, of their ways, those, those awful people in the rest of the world, those sinners in the Roman Empire, them, those Gentiles, we have to accept them, and yet, that's exactly what God was encouraging them to do, stressing them to do. And he even said it among the prophets in the Old Testament. So it's not like it was a new thing, a new idea, that one day God was going to open up this, this, this connection with him to all of the world. Because the law of Moses was a very limited connection at best, but now in Christ, it was open to everyone. And they just couldn't seem to get it through their heads and their hearts, more importantly. And eventually he calls someone named Saul, and he's going to be the one that's going to lead this effort to go into the rest of the world. So what in the world are you doing, God? I have to reach them too? We're supposed to reach the rest of the Gentiles? Well, what God is doing is, in order to accomplish that, he is calling and he is sending. Now let's go back to the beginning of the chapter at verse 1. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I had called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The church here in Antioch was, as I mentioned a moment ago, sort of the headquarters of the church at this point. And, they, and, and the church there was doing well, and they were strong, and they had, they had good teaching going on, they had good fellowship. They, and so as they were gathering together with these um, these prophets and teachers, they're all called that, including Barnabas and Saul and three others, God brought them a message. Now, what's interesting here is that it's not a new message. And, and how exactly they arrived at that message, it sounds like it was a group thing. It, it's kind of like after they fasted and prayed for a while, they sort of collectively came to the same agreement. You know what, Paul and Barnabas, it's time to get going. Yeah, I see that too. That's time to get going. And that's sometimes how the Holy Spirit works. It's not necessarily they're all fasting and praying, a voice comes from heaven. It's more a realization comes to their hearts. And that realization is shared in and agreed to. And yes, this is what the Spirit wants us to do next. And so they were ready to, to, to move into what they had been told to do. Paul himself excuse me, Saul at this point, and we'll come back to that point in a moment, um, Saul was chosen by God. It says in Acts 9.15, this is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles 
and their kings and to the people Israel. Now that was the message God gave um, Ananias, the man who met with Saul after, when he was blind and was prayed for him and the scales fell from his eyes, okay? That was the message God gave to Ananias to say, this is what this guy is going to do. This is why he is so important, because he's going to do this. But notice it says in that 915, uh, Acts 9.15 verse, to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to the people of Israel. So, so Saul wasn't going to go exclusively to the rest of the world. It was always in his heart, he being a Jew himself, to also deliver the message to his own people. And that's a, that's a hard thing to do. When you're going something brand new, doing something brand new and very different, it would be very natural to just let go of all of them and just exclusively focus there. But because you know that among your own people, you're going to get resistance and resistance of the, like the gospel message already had had. In fact, he was part of that resistance before he was saved because he knew that. So why should he put up with all of that? Because these are God's people and you need to also reach out to them. And that is what he did. And as he writes much later when he wrote the book of Romans, it says in 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So it is both. And uh, a couple of, of side notes here um, is that... Oh, I'm jumping ahead. Let me go to the next one. Okay. <laughs> The next thing that God is doing in the world is confronting opposition. Let's pick it up at verse number four. The two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed there from Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper as they traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Paul and Saul, excuse me, Barnabas and Saul, because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas. You are a child of the devil, an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately a mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. So here's some side notes. Um, this is John, it says, but it is Mark. It says that clearly there. It's actually the last verse of the 12th chapter. He was introduced earlier. John, also called Mark. This is the Mark of who wrote the Gospel of Mark. He is accompanying them on this journey. He's sort of an apprentice, if you will, learning and helping as best he can. And then the other thing is that in the ninth verse, we have this change from 
Saul to Paul, or at least in terms of Luke's writing about it. And in fact, from this point forward, you won't see the name Saul again in Acts, except when Paul is telling his own story before kings. And then he talks about his moment of conversion, and the voice said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So that's the only time you're going to find the name Saul again because it is now known as Paul. Now, what's the difference? Saul is his Hebrew name, his Jewish name. Paul is his Greek name that would resonate much more easily with the Gentiles that he was going to reach. Again, he's not closing the door on his own people, but he is now goes by his Greek name from, from here forward. And then, and then also, um, I didn't note this in the notes here, but let me point out the 12th verse, how the, the proconsul was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Now, he's, it doesn't say he was amazed at what just happened, how you know, the Spirit gave, gave Paul the power to bring blindness upon this, this false prophet, Elymas. And it says he was, that is, the proconsul was amazed at the teaching. Very similar to Jesus. For all the awesome miracles that Jesus did, he brought sight to the blind. He, he made the, the lame walk and the deaf hear. He cast out demons. But what you see consistently when Jesus is doing those things, the crowds were amazed, not at the miracles, they were amazed at his teaching, the proclamation of the word. That's what he was amazed at. And the same goes right here. But back to this bar Jesus named Elymas, otherwise, he's an influential Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet. And he is a very key person in this city. Apparently, he had the ear of the proconsul, the man that simply means he's appointed there by Rome to, be, to rule this city and this region. And so this Bar-Jesus was you know, influencing him. Maybe this, this man had, because of his sorcery, he had, he had tricks. In fact, Paul even calls him Philip just filled with deceit and trickery. Maybe it wasn't any genuine kind of dark magic, but they had a, he at least had everybody fooled, most importantly, the proconsul. And so when, when Paul addresses him and confronts him, you know, he is able to give him, and again, it's guided by what the Spirit wanted to do, but basically, Elymas had the same experience that Paul himself had. He also, that is, Saul at the time, was opposing the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was against it. What do we have here? We have a man opposing this message of the gospel. I don't think in, in the context here, I don't think he really cared that much about Christians or uh, opposing Christians. I think he was more interested in the power that he had politically connected to the proconsul, having his ear, and that was a threat to him. And, and yet, he had to be set aside. 
And so just like Paul, he was blind. It says for a time. It doesn't say how long. It also doesn't tell us the end of his story. Maybe after his blindness, he too became a believer. We don't know one way or the other. But what was most important was once he was out of the way, then the proconsul, amazed at this teaching, already hungry for it, then we can presume that he continued to allow it and, and promote it in his city because then Paul and Barnabas move on from there. So there was the, the opposition. They, were, they confronted the opposition and removed the opposition. And then what in the, what in the world is God doing also? He's reaching people through his story or history, play on the word, with us. This is what I read earlier for the most part, how now he traveled now to, um, to a new place. Let me um, pick it up at 13, just that 13th verse. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed for Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. Now, we'll pause there. Um, the, uh, if you remember the map earlier, they went north, basically, and then went pretty far inland. Now, that was actually a little bit odd, especially when you look forward to all the places that Paul would go to. Like, there were many, many cities in the world, of course. There were many, many towns. So which ones did he stop at with the desire, the intent to start a church there, to preach the gospel so there would be a, a, a living body of believers in that place to, to, to teach and, and to get them ready so he could leave and he knew that they would be ready to go when he left and they could continue their work and he could move on to the next place. The cities he chose, for the most part, were key political cities or key um, travel routes, port cities like Ephesus or Corinth. Rich cities where there was influential people, rich cities where people came and left from all over the known world who would come into Ephesus, for example, run into a Christian who would share the message of Jesus with them. They'd get excited about it, you know, follow Christ themselves, and then when their business was complete, they would take that message back to their city. So that was part of God's strategy to, and that, that, that Paul went to those places. But I say that to say Antioch and Pisidia isn't necessarily one of those places. But what is interesting from, from um, Roman sources, that is, that is Roman history and the annals of, of the various leaders, you'll find the name of this man in Acts, this Sergius uh, Paulus, being in fact the leader in Paphos appointed by Caesar. But then it also says in those records that he has family and friends, basically, in a place called Antioch of Pisidia. So it's not too much of a stress to think that he asked Paul and Barnabas to go there. Now, I'll be careful. It doesn't say that in the Word, but, you know, certainly the Holy Spirit works through all kinds of people, including potentially a new pro-counsel, a new believer who's excited about the gospel, loves his family, and wants them to know too. Okay? So we don't know the exact reason. That could be, that could be the reason, other reasons, but they end up here in uh, Antioch and Pisidia, and this is where, um, on the way, John, that is Mark, leaves them. And then we're going to pick that up in a few chapters. That, that's an important step in his life, and, and, and actually with Barnabas and Paul as well. But that's just a side note that becomes important later. 
And then it just tells us that they went into the synagogue and they were, um, they were asked to speak. The synagogue leaders. Now remember, this is a long way from Jerusalem, and yet in most of these cities there were Jewish populations who had a synagogue in their towns. And so that's where you would go to find people. So what's Paul doing? Exactly what God told him to do. You're going to go into the world to reach Gentiles, but first you're going to start with your own people. And we're going to see as you go forward in Acts again and again, as was his custom, it'll often say, he went to the synagogue first. And then based upon their response to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ in that synagogue, he would continue to preach there as long as he was welcome to do so. And, and you know, but then the, like this city right here, there were also in that group God-fearing Gentiles. That's what they would call them, God-fearers. They, they weren't Jews by blood, but they recognized something about these people and their one God, which I've said many times, and you should never forget when you read the New Testament, the rest of the world believed in many, many gods. That was normal. It was abnormal, odd, and even weird. And when Paul talks about the foolishness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's part of the foolishness in the mind of, the first century, of a first century person. That you would only have one God? Oh, that's, that's sad. You, you, that must be weak. But then that, that God in the form, in the person of Jesus would die, die on a cross, that's absurd. That's even more foolishness according to the way most people would think in that world. So here we have Paul in the synagogue, and I read this earlier, and he runs down a, a history of Israel, a rather brief one that, that has a whole lot of jumps to it. You know, he, he, he starts with their slavery and eventually their freedom in verses 17 through 20, you know, from, from, from Egypt and then you know, obtaining the land through Joshua. He skips over Moses entirely, pretty much. He goes from Judges to David in verses 20 to 22, and the time of the Judges until eventually there was a king named Saul and then David. And, you know, that's hundreds of years. Um, and then he goes several hundred years more, closer to a 1,000, from the time of David to the time of John the Baptist. But he, he's, he's bridging all of this. He's, he's reaching out to the... To, his, to the Jewish audience in the room in the synagogue, but also the Gentile audience in the room. And then he goes, how, he talks about, of course, the Messiah Jesus being a Messiah for everyone. What God has promised has come true. And what the law can't do, Jesus did. And you just have to believe that that's true. And that opportunity to believe is for all of you. In fact, he quotes various um, Old Testament passages, what we now call the Old Testament. And um, in one of them, he, he, quotes, he quotes David. Excuse me, he quotes Isaiah when he says, uh, this is way down in actually the 47th verse, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. As I mentioned earlier, the intent of God all along throughout Israel's history was to be inclusive of those who want to come in. Just because they're not Jews by blood doesn't mean they can't be part of God's people. And so Paul, understanding that now, quotes from, among other passages, Isaiah talking about a light for the, the Gentiles. 
So, so this is where he's preaching to an audience filled with both Jews and Gentiles and, and helping them to see that both of you are welcomed there, uh, reaching people through this story, this, this history. Let's pick it up down at, at 44 when it says, Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Um, you know, in, I'm sorry, 44. On the next Sabbath day, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse upon him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first since you reject it and do not, consi- and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. And there's that verse I wrote a moment ago from from Isaiah, the light to the Gentiles. Rejection. It's hard. And yet, what God is doing is, His servants, His preachers, His teachers, are enabled to preach and then ready to endure the pain. Because then it says in 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored for the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. So there's, there's celebration, there's happiness among the Gentile people in this city. But then 49, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women in high standing in, and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook off the dust from their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. When Jesus instructed his disciples in the gospel record, to, he sent them out two by two. He told them, when you go to a city, if they don't welcome you, just shake the dust off your feet. It's interesting, too, he doesn't say, have an argument with them. He doesn't say, you know, well, you stand your ground and make sure that you know they, they know they're wrong and you're right and you keep at it until they believe. It, it wasn't that. They simply came with a message that they heard from Jesus. And at that point, it's not the full message. It's still before Jesus' death and resurrection, but it was still you know, a, a message of, of the kingdom of God and the stories that Jesus told. They probably told in those cities. But if they weren't welcomed, okay, shake the dust. You ever tried to make someone love you? You ever tried by the force of your will to have a relationship righted by just your words alone? And you know, now you can have good words and they can present it softly and hopefully, but the point is if that person doesn't want it, you can't make them. So there's such wisdom in that. So this is what Paul and Barnabas did. The Jews in that city didn't want it. Move on. Let them go. And that's not easy. I don't, I've, I've never been kicked out of a town in my life. I don't think so. I've never been kicked out of an establishment in my life. I don't think so. Some people had experiences like that, okay. 
I'm not going to say a word. <laughs> but I can only imagine what it would be like when I'm not allowed to come back to a town. Like, like the, 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 the town authority says, don't come back, Paul Miller. We see you here again, you're under arrest. Or there's going to be trouble. Wow. That's hard. That's painful. And sometimes we look at these apostles like, well, they had this extra power from God that that stuff didn't bother them. No, I think it did. I really think it did. I think it hurt because they, they, they presented this message with love and, and passion, hoping dearly that their own people and the Gentiles gathered would, would hear the word and embrace the word. They could start a church here and they would rejoice in the Lord. And while some did, and there was some gladness there, Apparently, unlike the previous town, there wasn't a welcome there for the most part. And they had to leave. They were asked to go, forced out. And we wrap it up with this then. The other thing that, that God is doing in, in the world is filling the hearts of the faithful with joy. Last verse. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. That wasn't a flippant joy. That wasn't like, ah, oh, well, who cares about them? We're happy. No, this was, this was something in their heart that God blessed them with to say, yeah, that was hard and that was painful. But you know what? My love is with you and I'm with you and it's going to be okay. Now keep at it. You know, if you have that voice in your heart going on, you can, you can get through anything. You can get through anything because it, it, it's, it's bigger than... Now, now hear this, it, it's bigger than trying to gain approval of people. Because people are fickle. People are angry. People sometimes turn to hate, or, or, or worse yet, to deceit. And draw you in for a while, only to zing you later. That's what people do. That's what sin nature does. But when we are following Christ, and dependent upon Him, and not upon the circumstances, not even necessarily on the results... Just saying, Lord, this is where I need to be. This is what I need to say. These are the people to whom I need to say it. And I leave you with the results. I leave you with the outcomes. And if they praise God too, then we're going to praise God together. And if they don't praise God, I'm going to move on. And I'm going to believe in faith that you're going to help me to keep moving on. And that's what joy is all about. One of these candles in one of these weeks is the joy candle. A reminder of the light of joy in our lives that isn't dependent upon what other people think, do, how they respond, what they say, what they do, what they don't. Even the people closest to us in our lives the most. Even to our own family members. And that's the hardest, isn't it? When they're not on the same page. And yet you can still have the joy of the Holy Spirit in your life in spite of rejection, in spite of ridicule, in spite of angry words, in spite of broken relationships that you from your part have done everything you can and it still isn't there. That's the work of the Spirit, filling the faithful with joy. Even when it looks on the surface, there's no reason for you to have joy. God gives it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Let it go forth in our hearts and our lives and to trust and believe that your joy is always there. In your name we pray.